Good morning, Bethel. How you guys doing? Doing good? Great. Well, hey, my name is Tony Sorcy. For those of you that don't know me, I lead our young adult ministry here at Bethel Church. And it is always a privilege for me uh, to get a chance to come up here and uh, share the word and to teach. But uh, before I uh, get going here, I thought that I would share with you guys a picture that someone gave to me um, last night at Saturday night service. And this is it right here. Um, Someone in the service last night uh, apparently wasn't paying attention and um, <laughs> decided to draw this picture of me and you'll notice all my uh, defining features there. Like I'm so mad in this picture. And I got like my receding hairline, my cul-de-sacs going on right there, the Count Dracula, right? But the Bible's open and uh, now you should have saw the pictures he had of Pastor Steve. Those were, those were good for sure. Maybe he'll share those with you next week, brother. Okay, uh, my message, the title of my message today is Incarnational Mission Sent as Christ Was Sent. Incarnational Mission Sent as Christ Was Sent. And if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can go ahead and turn to John chapter 20 right now. In this message, I want to pick up the discussion that Steve started three weeks ago with his message on evangelism out of 1 Corinthians 9. Do you guys remember that message? All things to all people that I might win some. If you're our guest here this morning or if you've been away for a while, we've been in the midst of a series through the book of 1 Corinthians. And we recently studied 1 Corinthians 9, 22 to 23, where we got a glimpse of Paul, the missionary. And we talked about what Paul meant when he said, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. And in that passage, we saw Paul's missionary heart for reaching the world around him. And we even saw what Paul was willing to do to reach that world. He showed us that he was willing to flex and rearrange and even inconvenience himself and his personal preferences so that he might meet people where they're at for the sake of the gospel so that they might be saved. And for me, hearing that message was hard. And at the same time, it was really, really good. To hear talk of setting my own self aside for the sake of others is kind of challenging for a self-absorbed guy like myself. And I hope that you are challenged too in that message. And it's good that we be challenged in that area. Because if I can just be blunt this morning, this is an area where we really need to be stretched in. We really need to grow in this area, Bethel. And I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful for us. I'm hopeful that God can change us and start to grow each of us and give us a passion and a compassionate heart for the lost around us, to give us a longing to see redemption and transformation and change come to this region and to come into people's lives and a renewed realization of what Paul said in Ephesians, that God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or even think. He can do something awesome. Do you guys believe that? Do you guys believe that God can do something awesome in us and through us in this region? I do. And so I'm hopeful. And so I pray that he'll give us, he'll give us the kind of urgency that gets us out of our seats and onto mission. That we would quit thinking that God is going to use someone else to do this and to start to see that we are called. 
And what a worthy mission it is, isn't it, Bethel? To engage friends and neighbors and those around us who desperately, desperately need a Savior. And so for these reasons, I want to pick up that conversation we started a few weeks ago. Well, it's somewhat fresh in our minds. But instead of talking about Paul the missionary and what he did to engage those around him, I want to talk to you about Jesus the missionary and what he did to engage this world. And really, if you think about it, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I mean, Jesus was the one who ultimately flexed, who ultimately rearranged and inconvenienced himself for the sake of others, for the sake of the world. Now, Paul became all things to all people that by all means he might save some, but Jesus is God become a person. God became one of the people so that by means of the cross, he might save the whole world. Now, Paul is an exceptional missionary. The greatest missionary earthly ministry this world has ever seen. But Paul's mission is just a shadow of what Christ did. I mean, you want to talk about becoming all things to all people so I might win some. You want to talk about being willing to flex and rearrange and inconvenience yourself. How about an infinitely massive, transcendent God becoming a baby? That's rearranging. That's flexing. That's meeting people where they're at. And so Jesus did this in an ultimate way. Jesus indeed is the ultimate missionary sent to an underreached world. And not only has Jesus ultimately done this, but he sent us to do the same. God has called us to do the same. I want to call your attention to John chapter 20, verse 21. I know most of you are there. And in this passage, Jesus is talking to the 11 of the original 12 disciples. Just to give you guys a little, just kind of a little framework here about John 20, 21. He's talking to the 11 of the original 12. Judas the betrayer is gone. This is after the betrayal, arrest, beating, flogging, and crucifixion of Jesus. This is after his resurrection. And Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. He's about to leave this earth. And and, And the disciples are a little freaked out because Jesus is leaving them again. But before he goes, he charges these 11 guys with an important mission. And in commissioning these 11, he's really commissioning the church. That these guys represent. Jesus here in John 20, 21 is commissioning all believers. And really John 20, 21 is John's version of the Great Commission. This is John's version of the Great Commission. And in John 20, 21, we see what this mission is. So follow along as I read in John 20, 21. Jesus said to them, again, peace be with you. There's the freaking out thing. Guys, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. The mission is this. In the same way God sent Jesus, he's sending us. Jesus is saying, in the same way the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. I want to teach you guys a couple words this morning. Is that cool? The first is from John 20, 21, and it's this word sent. Now it's interesting, the word sent in the Greek is the word apostolos, which means to be sent with a commission. It's where we get the word apostle. Apostles are sent ones. 
And this passage is where the apostles get their commissioning, and it's also where we get ours as well. And it's interesting to note that in the, the English word sent is derived from the Latin word missio, where we get our English word mission. To be sent, as Jesus is talking about here in John 20, 21, is to be sent on mission with a purpose. Now notice it says that the Father sent the Son. Jesus was sent on a mission by the Father with a purpose. And what was that purpose? Luke 19, 10 tells us, to seek and to save the lost. Jesus was sent to seek and to save the lost. And so we, being sent as Christ was sent, We are sent on a mission with the purpose of seeking and saving the lost. Christian, this is our mission. We are sent as Christ was sent into the world to seek and to save the lost. You know what I think of when I hear words like mission and sent? I think of other words like urgency, drive, goal, action, purpose, initiative, intention. How many of you have seen the show Phineas and Ferb? Any Phineas and Ferb fans in the room? Yes, Brian Cordham, I love you. Now, if, it, if my three-year-old son Camden, he loves Phineas and Ferb, all right? And if you are a parent of any range between three to seven or whatever, you've seen this show. Um, and if you haven't seen the show, it's a great show on Disney. If you don't have cable, repent. And uh, we'll talk about that more in a little bit. And so Phineas and Ferb is this cartoon on Disney, right? Now, in thinking of Phineas and Ferb, it's interesting to see that every character on that show has a purpose. They all live with a certain intention. Like, let's take Phineas and Ferb, for example. Their purpose is to make the most of summer vacation and to avoid boredom. So they intentionally set out to build some of the most extravagant and elaborate stuff. I mean, these kids are, like, talented, It is crazy to see some of the stuff these kids build. They're building like rocket ships and time machines and roller coasters all throughout the city. And I mean, it's like, I don't know how these kids do it. It's crazy. And so they live with that kind of intention, purpose. And then you have their older sister, Candace, whose main purpose and her main mission on the show is to try to bust Phineas and Ferb. She's trying to bust them, right? And she's trying to get mom to come see what Phineas and Ferb are doing. And like every episode her plans totally get ruined like without fail every time her plans totally totally fail but that's her mission that's what she sent that's what she's there to do and then you have dr doofenshmirtz who's like the villain you always have to have like a bad guy and like if your name is dr doofenshmirtz it's not a good name for a bad guy it's just like you're right like right out of the shoot you're like you know no it just doesn't work And so Dr. Doofenshmirtz is kind of like this evil scientist. And in every episode, his mission is to destroy the entire tri-state area. But he does it in like the most ridiculous ways. So like this one, this one episode, he built the Uglyinator, right? And the Uglyinator was designed to make everybody in the tri-state area uglier than he is so that he can be the best looking guy around. And if you watch the cartoon, he's he's really not that good looking. And then you have Dr. Doofenshmirtz's arch nemesis. And this is kind of like my favorite character, Perry the Platypus. All right? Perry the Platypus. And Perry the Platypus is kind of like the family pet, but he's like this undercover secret agent whose main objective, main mission on the show is to stop Dr. Doofenshmirtz. And he does it every week. 
Like, he, like he'll come in and he'll get caught by Dr. Doofenshmirtz and it looks like he's not going to get out. But every episode he does, he gets out and he saves the day, he stops Dr. Doofenshmirtz. It is incredible. You guys got to watch this show. <laughs> and so I'm thinking about this show and I'm like, man, everyone on this show has a purpose, a mission, some reason for why they exist and do what they do. And then I realized that it's the same with all of us. It's the same with us. All of us are living with some kind of purpose. Everyone has a purpose. Some goal we're all striving towards. Some mission that we're on that's causing us to live with intentionality. To take initiative in our lives. To do the things that we do. And so what I'm saying is it's not that we don't get this idea of mission or purpose. We get it. Bethel, we get this. We live it every day. Our problem is that so often our purpose is to live out our own mission for the advancement of our own personal kingdoms instead of God's. Bethel, God has sent each of us on a mission with a purpose to seek and to save those who are lost like we once were. And it should be the underlying motivator in doing all that we do. So let me ask you, whose purposes are you living out? Whose mission are you on? And I'm not exempt from this. Sourcey, whose mission are you on? Whose purposes are you living out? And these are things, like I said, that God has been challenging me on. So God has sent us here in John 20, 21, Bethel. He's given Bethel Church a mission here in Chicagoland. And he's given each of us a mission in our own little word, worlds. And we all have a role to play. No one's exempt. We're all sent. The other word I want to teach you guys is incarnation. Not reincarnation, we're not talking about that. We're talking about incarnation. Now, the term incarnation is that term that's most commonly used to describe that moment when God sent the Son on a mission and the second member of the Trinity entered into human history as a human being. That's the incarnation. It's when God became a man. Now, the word incarnation comes from the Latin meaning becoming flesh. Okay, And the word carne means meat or flesh. Like Taco Bell, carne asada tacos. Yeah? Those are steak, grilled. I'm just going to warn you guys, I have a lot of food examples. And I sweat a lot too, okay? So I'm going to be doing that. So carne means meat or flesh. And so with the incarnation, here's how you come up with this word. You take in and carne and you put them together and you have in flesh. God became flesh. And of course, the incarnation teaches that Jesus took upon himself a literal human body, the enfleshing of God. And this is something that we celebrate every year at Christmas when we celebrate the birth of Jesus. Now, I know it's only early November, but I thought that since every other store already thinks it's Christmas, I might share with you guys uh, a Christmas song that we're all familiar with, okay? And it's Hark the Herald Angels Sing by Charles Wesley. Listen to what Wesley writes. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Get this. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. This morning, we're going to be talking about incarnational mission. 
we're going to talk about what it means to be sent as Christ was sent. And as we talk about that, we hope to, in a very real and practical way, directly draw inspiration and direction from that single unique act when God entered into our world and he entered into the human condition in the person of Jesus Christ. We're going to use the incarnation as a prism a lens through which we view the mission that God has called us on. And not only are we going to see how the incarnation informs our mission, we're also going to see how it motivates our mission as well. Okay, so that's the direction that we're going. To be sent as Christ was sent. Incarnational mission. So the first thing that we draw from the incarnation as it relates to our mission is that incarnational mission initiates. Incarnational mission initiates. Look at what John writes in 1 John 4, 19. He says this, we love God because he first loved us. In the incarnation, God initiates us. And God's been initiating us. He's an initiating God. He loves us first. And it's not so much that we cried out for a savior. We didn't cry out to God for him to come down. We were largely unaware of our condition. To see our need that we have to be rescued. To see the need we have for a savior. We were unaware of that. And it was God who took the initiative. And so it is with incarnational mission. It initiates. We take the initiative. You know, Steve made an interesting comment about this uh, in his message. He said, you know, your neighbor's never going to come to you and say, say this to you. Hey, I see you're interested in Christianity. For the sake of a friendship and a relationship with you, I think I'll be interested in Christianity too. And it's just like, yeah, that's not going to happen. It's just not. In large part, Bethel, our neighbors, our friends, for the most part, are not going to engage us. We have to be the ones going. We have to be the ones initiating. God has initiated us. And to be sent as Christ was sent means that we initiate. And we engage those places where God has us by his sovereignty And we take the initiative with the loss around us and seek opportunities to speak that truth into their lives that can save them. Which leads me to my next point. Incarnational mission speaks the truth. Incarnational mission speaks the truth. I'm going to show you this from John chapter 1. So you're in John 20, just go to John 1. Incarnational mission speaks the truth. Now, I'm going to read verse 1, and then I'm going to jump down to 14, okay? So follow along as I read. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jump down to 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John here, in John 1, he's going to use some real meaty language to describe some of the details of the incarnation. And it begins with John, and he's telling us about this word. And John tells us that this word was in the beginning, meaning that this word was eternal. And then John, then John says that this word was with God, meaning that the word had a face-to-face relationship with God. And then we see in 14, we see that incarnational language there. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we quickly come to find out that John's talking about Jesus. 
the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he kind of has this twofold description of Jesus here where he says that he was full of grace and full of truth. Let's take the truth part. Let's break that down. To be on incarnational mission means to be full of truth. While Jesus was on earth, he told the truth. In fact, John says in John 14 that Jesus indeed is the truth. He told the truth about God. He revealed to us who God is. He told the truth about himself, that he was the son of God. He told the truth about man and his conditions that were sinners in desperate need of a savior. He told the truth about sin, that it blinds us and holds us captive. He told the truth about the world and Satan, our enemy. He told the truth about the future and heaven. He told the truth about hell, that it's real and that it's really hot and it's for a really long time and you really don't want to go there. He told the truth about bad religion and he exposed the religious hypocrisy of his day. That's why they killed him. Jesus told the truth and he also told us that this truth will set us free. And since incarnational mission means to be sent as Christ was sent, so we tell the truth. We tell the truth as well. We tell the truth about God, that there's one God and that's the God of the Bible and that he's revealed himself as father, son, and spirit. And we tell the truth about creation, that God created this world and he created us. We tell the truth about God's character, that he's holy and he hates sin. And at the same time, he's immensely relational and he's shown us both in the cross. We tell the truth about man, that we're sinners separated from him. We tell the truth about salvation, that there's only one way to be saved and reconciled back to a holy God, and that's through Jesus. We tell the truth about the cross, that it's bloody, but it's exploding with mercy and grace. We tell the truth about the resurrection, that the tomb is empty, and as we sang earlier, Jesus is alive, and he's coming back again. We tell the truth about the Christian life, that it's not going to be easy. In fact, it's probably going to be one of the hardest and most difficult things you ever do in your life. So we tell the truth. And we know the truth. And we know that truth that can set people free. Bethel, we know the truth that can set lost people free. And because of that, we should be a people that is passionate about the truth. Always looking for ways to engage people with the truth. Always wanting to learn more about the truth ourselves personally. And grieved over areas in our culture where the truth is not told and where lies are spread. Let me ask you this. Do you ever get fired up about the truth? Do you ever get a little worked up about the truth? I think it would do some of us good to get a little worked up over matters of truth. Just a thought. Something to pray about. And so while on incarnational mission, it's important to be full of truth. But unfortunately for some, telling the truth is where evangelism starts and ends. For some, evangelism is all about giving people the truth, and that's it. Bethel, I want you to see that being sent as Christ was sent is a lot more than that. It's a lot more than that. Do we need to be full of truth? Yeah, absolutely. But incarnational mission seeks to be full of grace and humble with the truth as well. John tells us here in John 1 that Jesus was full of grace. And this is where remembering Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 13, 12 are very, very helpful. Listen to what Paul says. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even even as I have been fully known. Now notice what Paul says here. He says, we see, and we do, we see, but we see dimly. 
And then Paul says, we know, but we only know in part. We're still fallen. We're still finite. We're still learning. We don't have everything figured out. We should be lovers of truth, tellers of truth, but also to be humble with the truth as well. We need to be firm where God has been clear in his word, but be humble and be willing to come to a conversation, to come to a relationship and say, I don't have everything figured out. And Bethel, this is something that I wish I would have understood when I first became a Christian. I really do. Because back then I was all about the truth and not so much about the grace. I used to throw a lot of gospel grenades. You guys know what gospel grenades are? It's when you blow people up with the truth. It's when you just come in and you're like, truth, deal with it. Right? I used to be like, I used to throw a lot of gospel grenades. Gospel grenades are when you just destroy people. You just come hard and fast with the truth, trying to prove people wrong, trying to win an argument. And I would do this. I would just blow them up. Just ask anyone who knew me back then. I was real young. I had a lot of passion. I had a lot of courage. I had a lot of tracks, but no tact. All right? And to my shame, I share this with you guys. And I'm not proud of this. And I really look back at some of those conversations and I wish I could take them back or do something different. A lot of times I would press people real hard and drop a gospel grenade right in their lap. And just before I was off to my next victim, I'd have to ask what their name was because I forgot. Or I never asked. You know, it's one thing to have the truth offend someone, and it is offensive. The truth is offensive. But it's something else when we offend someone in sharing that truth. And so I used to be like this. And I look back at how I was able to grow into someone kind of, I think, is much more pleasant. I don't know. And I think of some key relationships that I had with other guys that really helped me to turn this corner But it was mostly in studying this portion of scripture that I want to share with you from Colossians. And I want to share with you the passage that kind of helped me see this whole truth, grace thing. It's Paul in Colossians in chapter 4, 5, and 6. And he writes this. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, this is a rich, rich passage when it comes to evangelism. But I want to just focus on this phrase, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. What we need to see is that the most common uses of salt at the time of Paul when he writes this had to do with food. Guys, I told you I was going to use a lot of food examples. And the use of salt back then was twofold. It was one to both, one, preserve food, and two, enhance the taste of food. Notice that phrase, season with salt. Now, some of you know this because you put salt on your food before you even taste it. You just douse it, okay? And you know who you are here in this room. So we kind of get this kind of picture here. And so Paul is telling us that our words, they need to be gracious. They need to be seasoned with salt. And they need to be salty. And what Paul means is that as you engage non-Christians or outsiders, as he calls them here, your words need to be gracious in such a way that they make the gospel desirable, or tasty. That's what Paul's saying. Speak in such a way. Add salt to your words, to your grace, so that the gospel is desirable or tasty. 
And just as salt enhances the taste and desire of foods, our words and our attitudes should enhance the non-Christian's desire to learn more about Christ. Now let's talk about the other common use of salt, preservation. When our speech is seasoned with salt, it means that we discuss and dialogue and interact in such a way that a second conversation is possible. We preserve the dialogue. We preserve the conversation. We preserve the friendship. This is like opposite of burning a bridge. We need to be a people who is preserving friendships, not burning bridges. Not bridges, bridges. See, when we ask to get everything out, when we, when we seek, when we seek to get everything out in 10 minutes of meeting someone, and we're out to win an argument, and we're out to expose their worldview, we might win that argument, we might expose flaws in their worldviews, but you're going to leave a bitter taste in their mouth. And they will put their knife and their fork down, and they will walk away from the table not wanting any more. We need to be gracious in our attitudes and in our words. We need to be full of truth and full of grace. Preserving the conversation, making it possible for another conversation to take place. And enhancing their desire to hear about the truth. My next point. Incarnational mission also means to be present. Incarnational mission means to be present. Notice the phrase there in John 1. He dwelt among us. Have you ever thought about this? God came down and dwelt. Like this wasn't a momentary thing. This wasn't a short-term missions trip. This wasn't a weekend visit. 30 plus years on earth. You know, Jesus didn't shout words about salvation from heaven. He came down and lived here. He was accessible, present, in the room. You could touch him, ask him questions, dialogue with him. This truly was a dwelling. And when I think of that, it always reminds me of this story in Matthew's gospel. There's this story in the gospels of Jesus where he's at Matthew's house. And the story goes that Matthew, who was a tax collector, okay? And tax collectors back then were like so bad and so hated and so low that the term tax collector actually became a, became a term to be used to describe people like the lowest of the low, like the worst kind of people. And tax collectors usually associated with the worst kind of people. And so anyway, Matthew's this tax collector. Well, he becomes a follower of Jesus. He becomes a follower of Christ. And, and so he's so excited that he met Christ that he throws this huge house party at his house and he gets a bunch of food and he invites all of his low life sinner tax collector buddies over to meet Jesus. And in Matthew's own gospel, he writes this. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, that's his house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Jesus reclined at the table. He reclined at the table. You know, Thanksgiving is only a few weeks away. You guys are aware of this, right? I'm looking forward to it for sure. And my mom, every year, she slaves for hours in the kitchen, making some of the best food that this world has ever tasted. And just hours. And she gets so discouraged because it literally takes us minutes to eat. And every year she's like, okay, just eat slow. And we try. 
We try so hard, but we can't. We cannot eat this food slow. We have to devour it. And after we're done devouring our food at Thanksgiving, we're going to get some coffee. We're going to be at the table. We're going to sit back and we're going to recline. Me and my family, we're going to recline at the table. You know what's going to be going on there? Conversation, interaction, laughing. We're just going to be together. I want you to see that Jesus is just reclining at this table. That's all he's doing is reclining at this table. He's just sitting and reclining and talking with those who were considered the lowest. No mention of preaching, no mention of healing. He's just chilling, being present, being there, reclining at the table. You mean he's not getting on them about their sin? You mean he's not preaching at them? No, he's not. He's just reclining. Something to consider. Another thing to consider. You know, it's interesting that Jesus lives like some 33 years and we only have the last few years of his life recorded in scripture. It's like, what was he doing before that? He was practicing this presence. He wasn't in temples speaking or healing people. He was just being a Jew in a poor, small Jewish town doing Jewish stuff, swinging a hammer for a living. He was being present and participating in his culture. He was so much a part of the place where he lived, where he grew up. Think about this, that this word that was in the beginning, this transcendent, eternal God was known as Jesus of Nazareth. Think about that. He so dwelt, he so practiced a presence that he was known as Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth. That's amazing. And Bethel, if we want to be on incarnational mission, we too should be present, participating in our culture. We should be in our neighborhoods and in our neighbors and friends' lives. We should be in their houses. We should be in their backyards having a real presence. Like you don't want to be that neighbor who comes home, pulls into his driveway and into your garage, shuts the door behind them, never to be seen again. And the whole neighborhood's like, what is that guy doing in there? You don't want to be that neighbor. We don't need more isolation. We don't need more of the bubble. I bet half of you in this room haven't even heard of Twitter. We've already come up with a Christian alternative for it. What is our, what is our infatuation with isolation and separation? Incarnational mission practices a presence where we live. So I want to challenge you to consider how you might do this where you live. And because Jesus was present and dwelt among us, because of that, he was able to identify with us. Which leads me to the next thing. Incarnational mission also means to identify with others. The principle of the incarnation is this, to become one with those who we would help. And it is profound to think that in the incarnation, God actually takes upon himself all the conditions, even the limitations and struggles of humanity. That's crazy. The incarnation wasn't a costume that he put on just for a little while. Jesus makes the human body his true form and figure. He was fully man and he fully experienced the human life. And because of that, he was able to fully identify. 
in the incarnation, God serves us not from the outside, but from inside the human condition. Jesus entered in and he learned and he experienced firsthand the hardships and struggles and temptations of our lives. I mean, think of this. In Isaiah 53, 3, it says of Jesus that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He so identified that he knew sorrow. He knew grief. The book of Hebrews explains this well. Like in Hebrews 4, 15, it says of Jesus that he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses as one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Then Hebrews 2.18 says the same thing. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is incredible. And so it's the same way with us. Incarnational mission seeks to truly understand and identify with those to whom we are sent. It means we're willing to sit and listen and learn. To learn people's pasts, their hurts, their hardships, their joys, their hopes, their fears. We want to know their spiritual backgrounds. We want to know their sins. We want to know their idols. We want to know what are those things that have contributed to them becoming the person that they are. Incarnational mission seeks to enter in and get to know people. Why? Why do we do that? Why would we take the time to sit and listen and learn? We do that so we can accurately sympathetically and very specifically speak the truth of the gospel into their lives. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of Francis Schaeffer, but in like the apologetics evangelism realm, this guy's kind of a big deal. And Schaeffer said that, Schaeffer said once, that if he had only one hour to be with a person, perhaps a non-Christian or a Christian, that he would spend the first 55 minutes getting to know that person, asking and answering questions, And once he got to know the person and their needs and problems, he would spend the last five minutes trying to help them to move to the next step, whatever that might be. Schaefer got this identification piece. And if we want to get on incarnational mission, we're going to have to as well. The next thing I want you guys to see is that incarnational mission serves sacrificially. Incarnational mission serves sacrificially. One of the most identifiable marks of Jesus' mission was service. Mark 10, 45 tells us this. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. In fact, you could sum up Jesus' entire life and ministry with one word, servant. And Jesus served all kinds of people. He served the crowds that came to hear him teach. He fed them. He served countless people in countless towns and cities by healing them, ministering to them. He even served his friends, the disciples, in a number of ways. We even see him in some of the last moments of his life. He's in the upper room washing the disciples' feet and praying for them hours away from being murdered, serving his friends. And let's not forget, Bethel, that he served a world filled even with his own enemies when he died in our place on the cross. I don't know if you've noticed, but we talk a lot about the cross here at Bethel. And not because we're obsessed with first century torture devices or blood. It's because our God loved us and served us sacrificially there. Giving us the ultimate example of love and mercy and service. And so it is with us. We need to serve. 
incarnational mission seeks to serve. We need to seek ways that we can serve our neighbors, serve others. Incarnational mission is going to mean that we discover, rediscover the art of hospitality. We need to rediscover the art of hospitality. Where we look for ways to be warm and welcoming and inviting. Serving people in very small, practical, simple ways. And there's all kinds of stuff to do if you think about it in serving your neighbors. I mean, you can invite them over for dinner. Cook them food. Go pick up their trash cans that Northwest Indiana wind blows down the street. Help them move some furniture. Help them fix something. Watch their kids. There's all kinds of ways. Just offer yourself. Be willing. Think about, have this kind of mindset that we're sent to serve. Part of incarnational mission is loving your neighbor as yourself, which Jesus says was the greatest commandment. And this doesn't have to be huge, but it will cost you something. It might cost you time, energy, sweat, or maybe God's calling you to truly pour yourself out for someone and serve them truly, sacrificially. But we need to seek for these opportunities. And let me just touch on one thing as it relates to service, as it relates to the motivation of our service. I recently read an article by a guy named Eric Swanson. He was talking about how for the Christian, seeing people become Christians is our ultimate goal. And it is. We want to see people come to know Christ. But he was saying in the article, it can't be our ulterior motive. Our ultimate motive is to see people come to know the Lord, but it cannot be our ulterior motive. If love and service is our ulterior motive, then after a while, when they aren't willing to hear or talk about the gospel, we're going to stop serving them and we're going to stop engaging them and our agenda is going to be quickly discovered. So I want to challenge us this morning to not serve people so that they'll become Christians, but to serve people because we are Christians. And you see this with Jesus. Jesus went into towns and cities and he served and healed people who didn't repent and who would never repent. And so it is with our service. It's regardless of what they believe or what they will believe. And two, to see this service that is done from a place of humility. That we're to serve people from a place of humility. And to see that Jesus, he didn't come in full glory with angels announcing he's arrived and demanding worship and adoration. He came as a vulnerable baby. And in humility, he served us. And just a couple verses come to mind and thinking about this. Think of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. How about Philippians 2? We always talk about this passage. Jesus made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus literally became nothing, a servant. And though he was worthy of the worship and adoration of the entire world, he humbled himself to the most shameful form of execution in the first century on our behalf. Jesus served this world and he served his enemies from a place of humility. An incarnational mission does the same. It doesn't come in from a place of authority where we're haughty and prideful, looking down our noses at sinners, forgetting that we're sinners too. It doesn't come wanting recognition. Here I am. I'm serving you. Check me out. It needs to be done from a place of humility. 
because we are Christians, because we love them, because God loved us. And so, to be sent as Christ was sent is to serve people, sometimes sacrificially. And to do that from a place of humility, it means to practice a presence and to dwell, to enter in and truly learn so that we can identify, so that we can in the most graceful way speak hard truths into people's lives where they need it the most. And so that's the mission. That's the mission, Bethel. That's what God is calling us on. But what's the motivation? What is the motivation for this mission? The motivation, the answer to that is the same. It's the incarnation. The incarnation needs to be our motivation. The motivation needs to be that God has come down and engaged us in missions first. That he has shown us grace when we deserved wrath. That he's spoken the truth in grace and helped us to understand the truth. The fact that he's been present in our own lives, being sympathetic towards us, identifying with us. The fact that he humbly served us sacrificially on the cross as a humble servant. And only a genuine understanding and a deep love for what God has done for you in Christ will sustain this mission. Because if we're not broken over our own sin... We're not going to be broken over someone else's sin. If we're not personally reconciled to God, we're not going to care that someone else be reconciled to God. If we're not personally overwhelmed by the love that God had for us in the cross, we are not going to have an overwhelming love for the lost around us. See that there is a connection between being deeply motivated to being on mission and the gospel impacting our own hearts. That's where it needs to start. So in closing, I just have a few thoughts. I know that there are some here who are kicking the tires of Christianity. You're giving it a test drive. You're checking it out. You're checking out this church. And seeing a bunch of people sing songs of Jesus is kind of weird. I get it. I hope that you get a sense here that we are a church that is passionate about a God who came down to rescue us from our sins. And that we gather here this morning, not to say how great we are, but to say how great he is. So stick with us, and if that's you, I'd love to talk to you afterwards. I also know that there are some here who are the more passionate, in-your-face, gospel grenade, here's-the-truth-deal-with-it types. Brothers and sisters, I praise God for your courage and for your passion. I pray it would spread across this entire church. The only thing I ask you to do is to consider the incarnational aspects of the mission. And for those of us who are in here, we're out in the world. We're in our neighborhoods. We're brushing shoulders regularly with our neighbors and with non-Christians. We know them. They're our friends. We're in their lives. They see our lives up close. We see their lives up close. And we keep letting the opportunities slip by. Remember the mission. Pray for a broken heart over their sin. And pray for courage to speak that hard truth into their lives with grace. This is the mission. It's difficult, I know. And for those of here, for those of us here who are trapped in the bubble, because I work at a church, this is my team. My life has a tendency to go this way. You're a Christian. Your friends are Christian. Your whole family and the family pet. Everyone's Christian. Everyone's saved. <clears throat> the car has been blessed by God. It's a Christian car. Okay, I don't know why I said that. You work with Christians, you go to school with Christians, you are isolated and cut off from the world. Remember the incarnation that Christ was sent 
on mission with a purpose into the world where he was present and dwelt. And so he sends us into the world. Think of some ways that you can get out of that and start engaging. Bethel, Jesus is calling all of us to get on mission, to repent of our selfishness and self-infatuation with our own lives and our own mission, and to be about others. So here's what God's telling us today. Here's a mission, Bethel. Get on it. Here's a burden. Start carrying it. Here's a city, a neighborhood, a neighbor, a friend, an enemy. Love them. Intentionally serve them. Sacrificially spend time with them. Practice a presence. Learn, identify, and may God do an awesome, awesome work through us and in us as we speak the truth into their lives with grace. So that's the mission. Who's up for it? Let's pray.